Hello. <laughs> You're here. You made it. You are here for the first episode of Not Only But Also, where we are going to talk about living in the both and. I'm Nicole Cottrell. And I'm Renee Ronica Bahati Klug. Try to make it longer. I dare you. <laughs> hey, look, I'm cheesy and I have no apologies I for like it. all of it. So we want to welcome you to today's episode, which is I'm not only this, but I'm also that. So Nicole and I have been friends for eight years and we have done a lot of things together. We own a nonprofit, which we'll talk about in a different episode. We go to church together, which we'll also talk about mm -hmm. in a different episode. And we've wanted to start a podcast, but we couldn't find the appropriate intersection between our, like, our many identities that we hold, which you'll also learn about as we go. And then a few weeks ago, about three weeks into the COVID-19 pandemic, we had a social distancing get-together. We were both in the trunks of our respective SUVs. When I say car, people imagine us That's right, no. like in the trunk of a car and we like kicked out the tail tail light mm -hmm. with our own respective <laughs> bottles of wine yes we had our bottles of wine and we were talking and i am an interculturalist i work at a university and i train on intercultural competence and i was telling nicole about something that happened at work where i was working with people from india and i also am not from india but i'm east indian eth ethnically i was born and reared in the united states though first generation american and how I felt like I couldn't answer questions that were being asked because I'm not fully Indian. And so I w it was this tension. And then Nicole mentioned. I had just finished reading Austin Chang Brown's book. And I was explaining how my life story paralleled hers so, so much until the point where it veers off because while she is a black woman, I am half black and my story changes when hers becomes very solidified because I no longer identified with one or the other. And Renee and I looked at each other and we had this moment of, wait, how have we never talked about this together, even on all of our times of discussion and being friends for so long? It's something that we both know about one another, but we had never expressed it in those ideas before. Mm-hmm. And so then it then was we were like, this is it. This is the intersection. But of course, we couldn't have this biraciality podcast that would extend beyond a few episodes, mm -hmm. although it might, but it could. Then we realized, well, we, we both have three children. Um, we both, we have a faith system, but we, our identities go beyond just, it's, it's rooted in that faith, but it's not embodied in the religion mm -hmm. or the ideology. And I think we can talk a lot about that. Um, we have Enneagram types, which we have mapped out quite uh, vociferously. <laughs> and we have all of these things that make up who we are, but those aren't the things Though that's not the be-all, end-all of who we are. Yeah. We were talking about how it's really easy for people to want to put us, and I'm sure you, um, in boxes because boxes feel really safe and boxes are easy to measure and boxes are understandable. But so many of us have one foot in and one foot out or we're undulating in between multiple spheres of our in our lives. And that represents many different aspects and identities and stories and experiences. And Renee and I both would say that about ourselves. And I think we know so many men and women that can relate to that idea mm -hmm. of existing 
in more than one place and more than one time. Mm -hmm. So really that's how this idea came about. So not only, but also is really us wanting to talk about those places and how they intersect and how you can be both and still be true to who you actually are. Yes. Whatever that looks like. I think so often, and we'll even talk about this when it comes to race, often when uh, Americans, let's say people who deem themselves white, see me because I do have dark skin, they view me as being Indian. But a lot of people within the Indian community view me as being white. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's always been this tension between the neither nor. I don't fit in. Mm -hmm. I... It, but recently, I was like, well, wait, wait a minute. Why does it have to be a binary? Why do we have to have this, this dualistic contention in, in who we are and how we embrace ourselves and others? And obviously, this plays out a lot in politics and religion and all of these kinds of things, but certainly in identity. And that's when I made a personal decision several years ago to say, no, I'm both. I am proudly both. And, and I'm going to saturate myself uncompromisingly, unflinchingly, unapologetically in both. Word. Okay, so before you, that, I want to clap for you. So that was beautiful. But I want you I to. Always I want you to applause. talk about what it was actually like for you growing up a little bit, like because you just you mentioned it. But what did what was your actual experience in your in your household and like with your Indian family and your non-Indian family? What did that look like? It was it was really unique and it was really fun. And I think we're Punjabi and Punjabis have fun. Yeah. All <laughs> I've right. Been to a couple parties. <laughs> we dance. <laughs> and so it was this. It was bologna sandwiches during the week and curry and let's uh, sog and chole mm -hmm. was my favorite um on the weekends so it was during the week i had my american life i grew up in in phoenix not too far away from nicole in the late 70s early 80s and that's what we did and i was one of three brown people mm -hmm. in my, at my elementary school and until a black family moved in when i was about second or third grade so it was you and the black family. No, it was me, the black family, one Hispanic family, and then another full Indian. Yeah. And we're still friends. She and I are still mm -hmm. friends. And so there was that. And birthday parties, I had my family, my Indian birthday party, and then I had my American birthday right. party. And so there wasn't a whole lot of intersecting. Mm -hmm. it, it, but a few friends got to see the intersections. Right. And so how did it play out with your family members? Who so your Indian family members? Did they treat you differently at all, knowing that you were Ooh. half white? Ooh. How did that go down? No, no, I don't think so. Now, I, I, I want to honor my parents. I want to honor uh, all of these kinds of things. But I will say that um, I want to quickly say this. In the grand scheme of things, I think you and I having this conversation and not recognizing the importance of being biracial, mm -hmm. it, it's coming at a time that's important. And the reason why I don't think a lot of other people have talked about it is because our generation 
was the first to experience Absolutely. this these biracial mm-hmm. identities before the 70s to are not you kidding even me? not just be biracial which uh, you know before we were born that was that idea and using that term and, and a biracial child was an anomaly yeah right that was the less common mm-hmm. situation but we were really the first generation to not only be biracial ourselves, yeah. but to have grown up with other people who mm-hmm. were also multicultural or biracial and become adults yes. who are now raising our own children. Correct. So we're like, we've, we're the ones that have gone through from beginning to where we are now. Yes. And that is important and it is distinct. Yes. And so setting that context, I think is important for me to say this. Neither one of my parents' families approved mm-hmm. of their getting together. Right. And they yeah. got together in their mid, mid twenty. one of them was in the mid-20s, one of them was almost 30. And so they weren't, you know, young by any means. And so, well, <laughs> in retrospect, I guess they were, yes. but you know what I mean. <laughs> and so there was that, that inherent bias uh, and there was that talk of, okay, you know, he's marrying her to get a green card. She's marrying him for I'm not sure. Oh, maybe man. he was a maybe he was a sheik or something. I'm not sure what right. the what the rumor All was kinds there. Of stereotypes, you know, or maybe she got maybe she got knocked up by right. somebody yeah. and and he, he was her safe escape, whatever. And you then have when to I explain came, it away because it's true. God forbid they actually love each other. Exactly. <laughs> and so when I came out being brown, it right. answered a lot of people's. <laughs> it, it's quelled a lot of those that speculation, you know, because conspiracy theory is yes. a thing. Uh-huh. And so anyway, I was born, but. But I will say that I felt embraced by by both sides of my family, and of course, there were always there's always people who are going to be ass hatty, mm-hmm. and they That's aren't an going. They, <laughs> it's true, and they're not going. They're going to have their stereotypes, and they're going to be bold and brazen about them. Um, but for the most part, yes, there was there was contention, mm-hmm. but at the same time. When you're family, you're family. Right. And I will say, I'll add one more thing, and then I want to hear about yours. My dad was reluctant to let my brother and me learn Punjabi because he oh, felt he felt then that it would um, it would capsize our boat, if yeah. you will. That he sensed all of the racism when mm-hmm. he got here in the '60s and '70s, mm-hmm. and so he thought, well, look, whatever I can do to kind of strip yep. that otherness, I, that's right. that if you will, I don't mm-hmm. like using the word foreign, but that international or global identity, mm-hmm. as we would say now, that identity from us, he wanted to do as a protection. And now, what, 40 years later, he regrets that. Yeah. I do know other um, families with um, a parent, one parent who has immigrated to the U.S. and who has chosen to not teach their children mm-hmm. their first language. Yeah. And, and they've also regretted it yeah so I, interesting i don't think i that, mean i understand it in the context absolutely so explaining it because i don't think especially looking at what the united states looked like in the 60s where civil right their civil rights movement had happened how we were just coming out of a very traumatic history with with race and ethnicity and you and all of this i don't think that we ever could have forecasted that within 40 years mm-hmm people would actually, well, a lot of people right. would embrace yes. being global, globally minded, um, and and befriending people who are not like you. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we would have, we could have seen that back that, then. I think it was perfectly understandable and even reasonable for your, from your dad's perspective at that time. Yeah. Especially if you take into consideration what 
he undoubtedly faced mm-hmm. and he experienced, he was, it was an act of protection. Yeah, it's true. And so the best story though is, you know, it, India and Pakistan have not necessarily had the best of relationships mm-hmm. because Pakistan was formed in the late 40s um, because they wanted to divide uh, uh, divide away. I, mean, am I, I think I'm using the wrong phrasal verb there, but oh well. Um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> they wanted to pull away uh-huh. from India. And so my, and my dad was born in what's now Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And so as being a non, non-Muslim, a, a Sikh, he and his family were forced out. Mm-hmm. And so that led to 30 years of trauma right. for them in, in India, in Punjab. And my dad was reared to not like Pakistanis. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when he got to the United States in the late 60s and got a green card because there was a, there was a, under John, the Johnson administration, any physicist who came here got an automatic green card. Mm-hmm. So they pro- disproved that rumor that he married so my mom for the green card. But in any case, when he got here, who embraced him? Pakistan. It was Pakistani international students. I love that. Right? Yeah. I love that story. And it just, anyway, and so that's that's the reality that I live in now. And that's the hope from which I live. But in turning now to Nicole's story, you also grew up biracial. And tell us what it was growing up, what it was like growing up for you. I have more questions for you that I'm going to ask you later. Okay, that's fine. But I'll answer some of yours. I can't dominate this conversation as much as I would like to. I like listening to you. I like listening to you. I was (laughs) captivated. Um, What was my experience like? So, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but also a lot of important differences. So my parents met very young. My mom was 17 when she met my dad. Uh, Shortly thereafter, turned 18 and had me. So she um, is Norwegian, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and she met this tall, handsome black man in a record store in Las Vegas, Nevada in yes. 1980, and they had a love affair, and it didn't go over well, as you were saying. <laughs> Similarly, no no one's parents were particularly happy about the situation. Uh, I will say my mom's parents were actually livid and my dad's parents were more welcoming of my mom they were actually very welcoming of my mom they were less happy that he had gotten someone pregnant and out of wedlock and didn't have any particular plans for what he was going to do but my mom's parents actually essentially disowned her Mm -hmm. she went to their house one day and they had packed up and moved out of the state without telling her where they were going and she was 17. So she was 18 by then, and she had me at age 18. So, you know, imagine she's 18 years old, pregnant with a black man's baby in 1980, in America, in Las Vegas. Oh, which Las is Vegas. I'm ex- sorry. basically Excuse the same me. as Phoenix. It's, it's pretty I'm much the same. Not a whole lot of cross-culturalism. Right. And they couldn't deal, and so they left, and they left her. And I think about that a lot, what that must have been like for her, how scary that must have felt to have your family gone. Um, but my parents didn't stay together long. They split up within a couple of years. They did end up getting married, but they did divorce when I was about two. And that was the first time I actually met my grandparents. So I met them about a year later, my mom's parents. So I was three the first time I met them. And they instantly accepted me, instantly, you know, loved me and welcomed me. And, there was never 
any question otherwise. I mean, it's like it hadn't happened. Now, I don't know exactly how it went down with my mom and her parents, but I know that they were all reconciled to one another. And I think, too, like kids will do that. Them getting to see their grandchild, a lot of things don't matter when you realize that the product of real love was on display because they did love each other, but they weren't able to stay together. So I was raised by my mom single mom and um i spent different sets of time with my dad so with my black family it was usually um vacations and in the summer when i would spend time with my dad and then i did live with my grandmother with my my dad's mom in los angeles for a time in south central los angeles and i lived with my dad um off and on, also in LA, off Crenshaw Boulevard. So to go back and forth between these kind of two worlds where everyone is black and there's all the stereotypes that exist around like South Central, let's just say South Central sounds really scary to most people. Um, I had great experiences there. I actually felt safer there than almost anywhere. Because everyone knows you and people look out for you and everyone watches your back and they know who you are and they know who your grandma is and it's this little protected bubble in a weird way. Which is countering that stereotype. Which is countering that stereotype. I mean, I understand too because I also saw a lot of things happen there and there were always police around and there were other things that were happening. There was gang violence, but I didn't experience it personally. So I'm happy for that. but. Um, yeah, so then the rest of the time was living with my mom and having a different experience. And I think like you, they, it didn't seem like those worlds crossed paths. Like there was this definite distinction between these two parts of my life, these two separate families, separate school experiences, separate friends. In LA, I had a lot of friends that looked like me who had brown skin and curly hair and dark eyes and in phoenix i had less that less of that but i did eventually find really close friends in high school my two closest friends in high school were both multiracial one was biracial and one was multiracial and we were just drawn to each other one was half hispanic and white and we just had this like unspoken connection i think just Mm -hmm. in knowing that we've grown up feeling different and feeling separate in a way. So, um, but not realizing it then, I don't know that I realized in high school that that's that duality there. Now I think I had touches and moments of it where I would recognize sometimes like, Oh wait, I look different from people Mm -hmm. or I knew if people made a racial joke Mm -hmm. that I couldn't laugh or I would be quiet in a corner because I knew that people just assumed that I was white or they just assumed I wasn't half black so they could make whatever comments they wanted. And I didn't speak up and I would just kind of stand there and listen. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have that happen? Absolutely. I remember there was somebody told an Indian joke once and it was so derogatory. And I just, I remember just internalizing Mm -hmm. it. And which is what I do mm-hmm. and just feeling really um, hurt by it. But it's, it's fascinating. And going back to a question you had asked me, I, I couldn't think of the answer, but you answered it for me. I reconciled mm-hmm. the, the, 
the two families. Mm. When when I came, yeah, people were like, "Well, forget about it." Right. I mean, they may not have been happy about yeah the the intercultural affair, yeah. but they were certainly happy about having a grandchild. Right. Exactly. That so I escaped a, a lot of that, like you were saying, which is which is a really beautiful thing, and I it's it's tragic because that doesn't happen with a lot of fam. I'm mm. imagining it doesn't happen with a lot of families. I think you're right. But then. In high school too, I'm thinking my closest friends, uh, two of the three are, are one is half Mexican, mm-hmm. half German. Her mom calls them Beiner Schnitzels. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't, I don't think that's culturally sensitive anymore, but you know what? In the nineties, yeah, mom said it. In the nineties, right. it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I will, I will mention that. No, I other half Japanese, um, and half white. And, and yeah. Oh, I, we of course I would we migrate. Know none of us were like making this decision at the time, this conscious decision. Like we're going to become friends with one another because we we share this multiculturalism. That's not what happened. But there's something that does draw you to each other. What is it? I I want to know. I mean, I know for us, we were we met in journalism. Actually, the my one friend, it was, you know, we got along in class in drama class freshman year, and she called me. It had to have been February what ninety one ninety two. And she called me up and she said, I know we don't know each other, but I think we should. I love and that. we went and saw Groundhog Day together with Bill Murray. And that was, <laughs> and that was it. That was 30, I think that was almost 30, 25, 30 years ago. I don't know, 1991. Let's do the math. And so yep, about 30 years ago. So that happened and you think about that. So we had this open mindedness. We had this willingness to have fun, this, this risk taking. How many freshmen would just call up a, a stranger? And say, let's go out. And the other mm-hmm. one say, yeah, let's go. So maybe there is something about being in that, the dichotomy of, of being in the both end that allows us that boldness, that freedom. I'm making broad generalizations here. and I'm, I'm so, going with it. But I'm, I think there's there could be something to it. Where, yeah, I mean, I've never flushed it out in my mind. I'm thinking, we had mentioned this when you and I talked before. And I think you had said this applies to you. I've never thought of myself as white. Yeah. But I've also never fully thought of myself as black. Yeah. And and there's reasons for that, um, which probably we should mention. But before that, because of that, I think that I was drawn to friends who also felt like that. Yeah. They didn't think of themselves as white, but they weren't. They also weren't fully Mexican or fully black. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that. And also I was thinking of um, the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together mm-hmm. by Beverly Daniel Tatum. She talks about, and it, it sounds like such an oversimplification. And we think, why why are all the black kids sitting together in a school? Why are all the Mexican kids sitting together in a school? Or whatever group it might be. And she she says, you, you know, you want this sophisticated answer, but the answer really comes down to by the point in high school, these kids have had similar shared experiences mm-hmm. and they look like each other. Yeah. You become drawn to the people that look like you because the people that look like you have gone through the same crap as you, mm-hmm. which means at some point somebody made some offhanded racial slur against them and so they can now identify with another person who looks like that because they've had that same kind of experience Mm. i 
was friends with brown girls because they look like me. Yeah. Because we'd had similar experiences of not feeling like we fit in one way or the other. Same comments, comments about our hair, comments about why do we talk like this? Why do we look like that? Why don't we fit in this group? Why don't we fit in that group? And we're drawn to each other without even realizing yeah. it. You're absolutely right. And these are microaggressions. Microaggressions are unintentional statements that people make and that, that are what Gloria Ladson Billings calls a, like a thousand daily cuts mm-hmm. where, you know, why does your hair look like that mm-hmm. or your skin or this or what I get now, what I got growing up because my mom is blonde hair and blue eyed was how can that be your mom? Right. And then I had this kind of complex, like, well, who am I? Where do I belong? Mm-hmm. And then now, thirty some odd years later, I have three children, two of whom are lighter skinned, blonde hair ish, and blue yeah, eyes, fair, fair skin, and fair I, hair. And we, we, um, <laughs> this is going to sound obnoxious. We summer in the Hamptons. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> That's where Buffy. My, <laughs> my husband's a Long Islander and his, uh, his dad owns a landscaping company out there. So we go out there every summer and I get gloriously dark. And without <laughs> fail, whenever I go out with my lighter skinned daughter, people in front of her, and this happened last summer. Somebody said, how can you with such dark skin have such a light-skinned daughter? And so then what you did is you pulled out your whiteboard <laughs> from behind your back and you drew I, a diagram I and you did. began with basics of biology. And then I did. Moved no, I had the genetics. video from the night. Oh, the My husband night. and I That's are right. exhibitionists. Right. The, the, the so. consummation. <laughs> I mean, here you go. When people That's ask so. you those questions, do you feel gracious and you want to answer them? Do you want to explain how it happens or do you generally want to blow people off? So when it has happened, so it's happened, uh, my oldest is 10. It's happened for all of these years. Um, or actually, I should say my 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 oldest looks a lot like me. The next one, she's nine. So for nine years, this has happened numerous times. At first, I would snap back with, I can show you the pictures or I can describe right. the night. Mm-hmm. But as I've moved into this role that I'm in now, where I am and I do teach on cultural intelligence mm-hmm. and the the foundation for cultural intelligence is emotional intelligence. And I was like, well, maybe I should. You want to walk um, the walk. Maybe I should <laughs> walk the walk here. <laughs> but I have two points to make here. One, so now to answer your question, I do give a little bit more of a scientific and gracious answer. You know, I say, okay, it's recessive genes. I don't go into my family you history. You are so much nicer than but me. But I will say this, though. I want to make it very clear that it is not our responsibility to teach the public. It 100%. Is, it is not our responsibility to give people a biology lesson. Uh, certainly a history lesson. Yeah, history lesson. Any kind of a, lesson. A family history. They don't need to know my genealogy. Absolutely. You know, these kinds of things. I mean, there are a lot of things I'm willing to talk about, trust Mm me. Um, But that is not my responsibility. But I do take it upon myself to do it because of what I do professionally. Right. and Which makes sense. Yeah, it does. But at the same time, at any given time, if I feel like somebody has crossed the line, I would probably, I could snap at them and say, you know what, that's an inappropriate, it's inappropriate Mm -hmm. for you to say that. Or... um, or I might say, you know what? I'm a safe person for you to ask this question to. Yeah. But please don't ever ask this question again. <laughs> but ever, don't ever do it. Not one more time in your entire life. This is your... Sp- You're lucky. You're <laughs> lucky you your got only me. strike. Right? And so that, I think, is something that in the future I might, I might be doing. Because pe- people ought to be educated um, 
And of course, but listen, yeah, but they you, have to be educated on their own yeah, time. No, no, no. And if you want Mr. me to Google educate you, is always available. He <laughs> wears a bow tie. He's a gentleman. You just type, 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 type. And, and he will frankly, answer you. If you want me to educate you, you better cough up the cash. No kidding. And because I'm not doing this for free. Renee's PayPal is at <laughs> Renee, Renee Ronica. Ronica. <laughs> okay. So this reminds me of a time. I was in Los Angeles with my husband, who is white, my three children, who are a quarter black. And really quickly, all three of Nicole, okay, Nicole and her husband both have brown eyes, and all three of her children have blue eyes. It's like a one- so I got some questions for you, Nicole. I know. We actually <laughs> looked it up one time. It's like a one in 44,000 chance, and it's it happened amazing. three times. So whatever the math is on that, I don't know, but you can crunch the numbers. Uh, we were in LA, so we were visiting my dad. And my stepmom at the time, who's also, she's actually Creole, but so we're sitting, oh, my brother and my brother, my brother's black, black skin, brown skin, I mean, black, black man. We're sitting at a table in a, I don't know where we were, food court. So you've got three white kids, a white man, two black men, a black woman and me who looks something in the middle. And it's confusing to people. And I get it. Also, we're in L.A., though, so it shouldn't be that confusing. Yeah. But this family is sitting next to us, maybe a table away, and they keep staring over at all of us. They keep staring over at all of us. And we're all noticing. And I'm like, these people are going to come. These people are going to come over and ask us what's going on. Mm-hmm. They they desperately want to know what's happening right now. And also, you have to imagine my dad is bouncing a baby on his hip, <laughs> my baby, who's blonde hair and blue eyed, this black man carrying this white baby which makes people so very uncomfortable. And one of the people from the family gets up, walks over a few feet to us and says, we were just wondering, how are you all related? Which is such a weird assumption. It was very weird. And in that moment, I don't know, we were all feeling quite gracious. My dad, especially, because usually he would blow something off. Like he would not answer someone. But he was holding his grandbaby and he's full of like Papa pride. And he was like, this is my grandbaby. And this is my daughter and her husband. And these are my grandkids. And he went through the whole explanation and these people were nodding and, oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, that's so great to hear. And, you know, they went away and I thought, man, that was really nice of you to give them an explanation that they didn't actually need. But another time I was out with my dad, it was just me and my dad and my three kids. And we were sitting on a bench in a park. I know white woman came up to us, an an elderly woman. And she was staring at my dad, looking at me, staring at my dad, looking at me, looking at the kids. What? I know. And she said, she didn't directly ask. She was kind of poking at us like, oh, and, and, and are these your children? And, and, and is this, is this so-and-so? Does this child belong to you? (gasps) And she didn't come out and quite ask. As if you had abducted them? I don't know. It was... I don't know, but I knew that she was uncomfortable. She was uncomfortable. Wow. And she sat there for a while waiting for us to engage her in conversation and answer her questions, and we didn't. And she left, and my dad looked at me, and he said, I was never going to give her the satisfaction. Mm-mm. And so you have those different experiences where, yes, people are genuinely curious, and they want to know, and I get it. And then you have people who are probably hiding some – measure of prejudice if not racist thinking and they want to know because they need to know Mm -hmm. 
and they don't deserve to know. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, connected to microaggressions is implicit bias, which people do unwittingly. We don't even realize the biases that we have that cause us to be suspicious of families that don't fit the mold that we have. But what's so fascinating about bias is they can also be positive. Mm -hmm. And I think back, Nicole, on our high school situations, how the friends we chose that you and I chose each other mm-hmm. and, or maybe our friendship was chosen for us. Was it? That's a future it's conversation. Very possible. But in any case, a, that also though evinces a bias, even though it's a positive yeah. one because you're saying, look, I recognize, maybe I don't recognize who I am, but I recognize who I am to the extent that I know that I don't fully belong. Right. And so that allows you to gravitate toward others who might feel the mm-hmm. same. And so, but in looking at this, I, it's, it's important for us to own these things and it's an important for us, uh, who have been transgressed to say, okay, in, in any situation, we have the power to create a boundary and say, nope. Yeah. Not today. Or to move forward in that conversation and offer education. And what's fascinating when I talked about my experience last summer in the Hamptons, the woman asking, was from Eastern Europe. And I feel like, and this is a bias that I'm going to admit to right now. I work in internationalism. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of people from a lot of cultures and I taught international students for almost 17 years. And so when it comes to my level of graciousness, when it it comes to international people, it's high. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, I was very gracious to her, I also really enjoyed the muffins, the gluten-free <laughs> muffins that she served at her cafe. Um, muffins will always go a long it's way true. with Renee. They will. And so I have an allergy. I'm not a douche. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, sometimes I can be, but not that day. And so my point here is, is that I'm thinking, I wonder if I'm kinder to people who I have a positive bias toward. Probably. I think yeah. we all are. I mean, that's kind of part of the conversation is, we do all carry a bias one way or another, mm-hmm. which are for sure conversations we will have down the road on this podcast because <laughs> uh, we've already talked about some of them. But that's normal, right? I mean, that is part of being human. We carry these bias. It's recognizing them. It's knowing what to do with them, mm-hmm. identifying them when you can, and not living in them when they're negative, right? I mean, you tell me. You're more the expert on that, but... I mean, what it is, is you first have to, you first have to admit that you have the bias and then, and not be ashamed of it, but just own it. Mm-hmm. And then what, going back to cultural intelligence, what is, what are you going to do to make behavioral changes? Mm-hmm. So first, usually you have to learn about the culture that you, let's say if you have a negative bias, you have to learn about that culture if you want to overcome the bias. Yeah. But that's the number one question. Do you want to so overcome this? So does walking up to a stranger and asking them about their ethnicity, does that count as I'm um, learning about I don't know. It, and I'm kind of a hypocrite here because <laughs> you have been in my presence when, especially if we have a, 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 a server at a restaurant, which Nicole and I, before this pandemic, loved to eat at restaurants. And I still love to do it. Remember when going out to restaurants was like... I know. Remember when we were allowed so to fun. do that? Remember when you could do that? And Nicole and I can easily, easily drop way, way too yeah, much we, money. We, on so we, much we food. We like to eat good food. We do like to eat good food. And we can go to Vegas and at 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> eat french fries and, and chocolate shakes uh-huh. as if we were still in college. And so in any case, where was I going with that? Our um, server. 
So owning those biases, that's number one. And number two, I think learning as much as we can about that other to humanize them. Because so often we just have a, a series of stereotypes stacked up. And, um, but that's the thing. That's the thing. Those series of stereotypes also is another measure of empowerment for those of us who are trying to come against microaggressions. Yeah. In saying so, so often, oh my gosh, so often, especially right now with COVID 19, all of the overt racist and violent acts against Asian Americans mm-hmm. or, or Asians in general, but specifically in the United States. And so when people make these comments and, and call the virus according to its geographic uh, origin, Chinese pandemic. Yeah, it's not that. You can't use that. You have to say COVID 19. Wuhan pandemic. Yes, and if you want to know, the World Health Organization in 2015 updated the naming protocols of viruses, and you are not allowed to call a virus by its geographic location. You can't reference an animal, so swine flu would no longer be acceptable. Not even animals. Animals got the yeah. flu. Yeah, you can't even. And so Lyme disease also. Lyme is a place in Connecticut. You that you would not be able to use that so terminology anymore either. So when people come at me like, "What about the Spanish flu?" I'm like, first of all, that was 1917. Also, it wasn't named after the origin. Uh, possibly. I can't remember. Where did that come from? I so don't know. I did some so, of my own Google research good, that I have quickly important. forgotten. But yes. at the time, yes. it said something about. <laughs> that didn't originate in Spain. No. It was named after that for another reason. But good. I don't know what that is. I don't know either. And so maybe, no, we're not going to. Oh, you know what? You go do your homework and we'll do ours. Yeah. That will be our <laughs> pact with you. But in any case, one of the biggest things when people do come at me with these racist things, like, well, Renee, why can't we call it the Spanish flu? because they, Or why can't we call it the Chinese virus because they called it the Spanish virus? I talk about the evolution of, of a species and how if, you know, we can evolve with that. And then I reference the WHO. But then I ask them another, or then I come back with this. Well, I've worked with people from China and Asian Americans for the greater por- portion of 20 years. And in my experience with them, it has been, for the most part, positive, mm-hmm. right? And and then I asked them, what is your experience working with people or interacting with people from China or Asian Americans? Oh, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, your ignorance is showing. Very, very, very limited. Right. And so a lot of times we, we can combat that with, with those kinds of things. But again, it's this. I like to do that and I like to educate on that. And I do think it's important to educate if you want. I think that you are more gracious than me and nicer than me. I think in elementary school, high school, I definitely wanted no part of that. People ask me stupid questions all the time. We, you know, do you feel more black? Do you feel more white? What, what's that been like for you? Maybe those aren't stupid questions, but they were questions I didn't want to answer. And then in college, I spent a whole bunch of time trying to figure out who I was. Mm -hmm. And I read so many books on racism in America and, you know, what it means to be black and what it means to be a black woman. And I still didn't feel that that was me either. Mm -hmm. And I was never fully, when when I was talking earlier about Austin Channing Brown's book, I was never fully accepted i don't think by the black community because of the reasons we've even touched on my skin's too light my hair's too white i talk too white which that's a whole separate conversation Mm -hmm. um but then also not feeling white 
and yeah. not fully identifying with that either. So I rejected all of that in college. I didn't want to have any of those conversations. I didn't want anybody to ask me a single thing because I was even in the midst of trying to figure it out for myself. Yeah. Then going and getting married and then kind of swinging even further away to saying, I am a Christian, my identity is in Christ, and pushing away any thought of race even further from my mind and not even really talking about it, not even talking about it with my husband, not talking about it with my kids, mm. not talking about it with my family. I wanted, I, I really kind of wanted to run from it. And then I've gone full circle and I'm not where you are because yes, you do it for your, it's part of your job, but also, and you're really gifted in explaining and, and I think teaching people and opening people's eyes. But I definitely have had the conviction in the last few years that I have a responsibility. Mm -hmm. I do have a measure of responsibility, whether it's from the Lord, whatever you want to, however you want to, you know, pin it on me that I don't get to just then go through life and represent two parts of myself and then not share that with anyone. Mm. And I know that that's important. I know that that's a huge piece of who I am. And if I want to be known and I want people to know me and I want people to know other people in the world, then I do have to share. I do have to talk about it. Yeah. And otherwise, if this had been a couple of years ago, I wouldn't even probably want to be sitting across from you having this conversation yeah. because I got that far away from that part of myself. Yeah. What brought you back? I think a few different things. I think having children and my children getting older and them recognizing, wait, 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 we have this other family. We have these these family members that don't look anything like them. You know, they're a black family that doesn't look anything like my children, but they have questions and I'm a homeschool parent. So we're reading about the civil rights movement and we're reading about the Holocaust and we're mm -hmm. reading about these really hard things in the world and in history. And I have to be able to give them answers and in doing that, I want them to be educated. I want them to be empowered. I want them to be fully equipped in their own identity. And that means I have to be equipped in mine. Yes. I have to speak from that place of who I actually am. And then I'm just going to say, I'm just going to drop a name. Maybe Donald Trump has had something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe the manifestation of the hate that probably has already been there underground yeah. coming to the surface has forced my hand and my heart to respond mm -hmm. and I cannot be apathetic. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Mm -hmm. And I, we will absolutely talk, not so much, I we I don't want to get um, divisive here and alienate anybody, but but the idea of of the election of 2016 having had a cataclysmic effect on who we are as as believers in Jesus as women as uh people of of multiracial heritage i think that's something we'll talk about later but really quickly and in, in wrapping up i wanted to say part of what i do is identity formation and What's so fascinating in having discovered my own identity, the Indianist, I think when I became a Christian, I had a lot of different religious upbringings. My parents were at, at different weekends, each of their guilt rose up and they would bring me to their respective mm -hmm. uh, temples and or church. And, but I finally had a, a conversion and finally I had a conversion experience when I was about 18. And I think that kind of uh, uprooted any sort of cultural identity. Right. And then in graduate school in 2001 in New York, um, I had an Indian professor 
who taught fiction and we, we, our class got over early. And so she picked up a random book from a student's desk and began to read from it. And as she read, I could, something within me began to shift. And I mean, I guess you could call it, I guess, I, I mean, trigger is as a negative word, but my amygdala was hijacked. <laughs> like I, I had a visceral reaction to the words that were being read mm-hmm. because there was something that was identifying. There was something within the words of this book that were, that were identifying with who I was mm-hmm. innately. And, but a person who I had not, uh, responded to or acknowledged yeah. for many, many years. And it was Jhumpa Lahiri's interpreter. Yeah. And of I'm not surprised. I mean, I yes. feel like maybe I knew this story, but I yes. know, I know. And that was it. That was the moment. I was what, 24 ish. And I said, okay. I, I can't ignore this part I of love me it. It's so good. Anymore. And so, in, and the same thing with you. And every year with my children, it has to be a doubling down. I don't want them to lose mm-hmm. because now they're a quarter Indian. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, my husband is half Italian. And I don't want them to forget about their quarter Italianness. Exactly. And then we're both Irish. And so we're going to have to include that somehow and not just the token, uh, March 17th, but you know, this kind of thing. And, and I, so I implore those of you listening who have all of these different aspects of your identity. You start with embracing people who have already gone before you. Yeah, that's good. The Jhumpa Lahiri's, the Austin Channing Browns. But here's what's so fascinating and why I think Nicole and I wanted to be here in this space now. There are very few of us who are in the both and. And so as you begin to discover who you are and, and, and I'm thankful for all of the media out there that's beginning to uncover this and going beyond just the stereotypes. Most of them are. I think this is a good place to be. And I'm, an ex- I'm excited for all of the different conversations we're going to have about not just our multi-ethnic heritage, but our identities as moms, as Christians, as uh, non-Republicans. As non-Republicans, or <laughs> I don't even know what I am, as wives, as yeah. working moms, as business owners, as ministry leaders. There's yeah. so many things where it's so necessary to inhabit both spaces. And we can't wait to have those conversations with you guys. Yes, absolutely. And so, Nicole, I want to say thank you so much thank for you. starting this conversation. I have appreciated it so much. And I have one more thing that I wanted to say in signing off. And that is find your only. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Almost. (laughs) The only time I've read is the only time I've botched this thing up. That's about the way it goes. (laughs) I know. Find Find your. your. This is so contrived. Find your. Not only, but also, listen, we're working on the closing. Don't, we are. Don't, don't, don't judge us for that yet. We're okay. working on the closing. But in signing off, we implore you. We invite you. Nope. <laughs> we'll talk about it next time. This is Nicole really reminding you to find your not only, but also. Bye.